Broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio inside the Sonesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. It's time for Travel Safely with Brian Mulligan. Travel Safely is presented by Applied Information, creator of the Travel Safely smartphone app. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Applied Information Show. Today we've got uh, quite an interesting topic, which is the FCC ruling. And I know a lot of people are really interested in this. Um, so we're gonna be talking about that with Brian Mulligan, who's sitting next to me. And Brian is the president and CEO of Applied Information, but also serving as the NEMA 3TS chair. And he'll be joining us today as the expert uh, talking about the FCC ruling. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, yeah, the FCC ruling on uh, connected vehicles uh, has been e eagerly awaited uh, because it's going to bring some kind of certainty, uh, we all hope, to how to deploy connected vehicles and how to save the lives and deploy this technology that's been waiting in the wings for so long. Uh, and uh, those of us in the surface transportation space have been uh, you know, arguing about radios and all kinds of things for, for many years. And what we're going to try and do today is not repeat those arguments. What we're going to do is try and approach the FCC ruling from the business and the operational point of view, is how do we actually make sense of all of this so we can actually deploy and move forward and actually deploy these life-saving technologies as opposed to arguing about them or talking about them. And so what we've... You know, distilled is the FCC ruling, which I've got a, a copy of here. It's 144 pages, uh, which you can uh, read of, which was adopted on November the 18th. And if you want to not get a couple of hours of your life back, this is recommended reading. It's, in fact, it's quite interesting. Uh, but what we're going to do is give you a summary of the implications of all of this and how to practically move forward uh, in this environment now that the FCC has ruled. So what we've done is we've split this into uh, five topics that we're going to deal with in turn. And Speed, do you want to take us through the, uh, through the topics? Thanks so much, Brian. Uh, I'm going to jump through these different topics. As Brian said, this is a nosebleed of a document. Uh, we have gone through it all and are very aware and been following it. And Brian, obviously, in his NEMA role, has, has been looking at all those things. Um, so what we've done is we've cut this into five different segments that we're going to talk about today. The first one is uh, the, what are the main points of the ruling? So we're gonna go through the main points of the ruling and talk about those. Then we're gonna look at, is it likely that the ruling is going to stick? Meaning? What, it, what that means is, uh, is it likely that the uh, ruling is going to be changed by a subsequent FCC? Or how solid is this? And how well reasoned is it? So we'll take you through what our opinion is of this. It's obviously politics and it's uh, uh, things like that. It's always sub subject to change. But we're going to give you our reading and our interpretation of uh, the, you know, the longevity of this and, and what the likelihood of challenges and so forth. The next thing, what we're going to do is we're actually going to look in the practical side of, um, of, of the deployments. If I'm in agency with current DSRC deployments, what should I do? What do I need to do as well? And then we're going to look at agencies that are actually in the current procurement process. What do they need to do right now? And lastly, we're going to look at if I'm an agency not doing deployments yet, what should I do? So there's, you know, five different topics there that 
as Brian said, we're going to look at the practicality of what this ruling says. And we're going to try not to go down into the nitty gritty and, and go through all these things. If there are any questions that come up on that, we'll definitely try to uh, answer those questions there. So the first item that we were looking at is what are the main points of this ruling, Brian? Okay, so that there were a couple of main takeaways. Uh, because what the FCC did is that they changed the landscape of connected vehicles completely. Uh, uh, and so, uh, right, wrong or indifferent, they were quite clear about not kicking the can down the road, but deciding definitively on a whole bunch of things. The first thing is that they took the lower, there were 75 megahertz allocated to DSRC radios, and they took the 45 megahertz of that, the lower 45 megahertz, and assigned that to Wi-Fi. This was quite a bold move from a, a, a number of reasons in the FCC ruling, because you know, there was the argument from a lot of transportation professionals that, oh, you're decreasing safety. Uh, the FCC ruled that that wasn't the case based on the evidence before them, and we'll go into that in a little bit more detail. Um, but what it did, the allocating this 45 megahertz uh, to Wi-Fi had a real multiplier effect on Wi-Fi, the way the bands are allocated in, uh, in, in Wi-Fi, that their expectation is that the, it would create huge capability in Wi-Fi to deliver um, telemedicine, which is applicable in COVID, and many other applications uh, that they uh, reasoned uh, were in the public interest, in the interest of the American public. So they were very focused the whole time is one of the interests of the American public. And uh, that's where they ended up with the lower uh, 45 megahertz. Then what they did is they said the upper 30 megahertz is preserved for automotive safety. Uh, and so this was again uh, somewhat controversial in uh, in the in the ITS community that uh, they you know there was a save the spectrum and the safety spectrum and so forth uh, discussion and the FCC reasoned which I'll touch on in a little bit that the arguments were not persuasive. Uh, that automotive safety would be preserved in 30 megahertz. And that was how they ruled. Um, the um, next point of the, uh, of the ruling was that cellular, they weren't ambiguous. Uh, in the notice of proposed rulemaking, they thought, well, maybe we should preserve for some for DSRC, some for cellular V2X, and sought comment on that. In their ruling, they were completely unambiguous and said that cellular V2X, CV2X, is the future. And not only is it the future, but deployment will benefit by it being the sole selected technology. So what they did is they declared a sunset on DSRC uh, and rightly, wrongly, or indifferently said that cellular V2X uh, direct, as it's called, is the deployment of the future which has a whole bunch of implications for the infrastructure community because people have developed uh, and deployed DSRC. But the, the FCC made the very strong point that you can't buy an automobile on the, um, uh, on the car lots of uh, America today that has a DSRC radio in it. Nobody's making them. 
So consequently, the implications for the automotive industry are very low. The reason why they chose DSRC, you know, Cellular VTX over DSRC is that this technology was selected by the majority of auto industry. They listed all the auto companies and a lot, big shout out to the 5GAA um, as this is the uh, technology that's supported by the majority of the automotive industry. The other reason why they selected Cellular V2X over DSRC is for the ability of uh, Cellular V2X to offload non-time sensitive messages to the cellular network. And that's called Cellular V2X network or Cellular V2N. But the fact that uh, Cellular V2X has these dual technologies which allows for um, a lot of uh, additional capability over, cellular Vito, uh, over DSRC. And so this is the slide at, at the moment shows um, that there's cellular V2X, uh, which can be direct and can go to pedestrians and vulnerable road users and cars and so forth. But it also supports network-based communications, whether data flies uh, through the cell tower. And the combination of these technologies was persuasive to the FCC in them selecting cellular V2X as the sole technology uh, to be permitted in the 5.9 gigahertz band. What the FCC did, rightly, wrongly, or indifferently, you know, everybody's got their own opinion, is that they included a migration plan away from DSRC to cellular V2X. As a practitioner in the ITS space, obviously we're all quite anxious about that and what, what does all of that mean. But their, their transition plan was quite practical and quite easy to understand. And what they did is they split it into two pieces. The first thing they did is that, they, uh, that there was a requirement to migrate existing DSRC deployments to vacate the lower 45 megahertz. So that was a key thing that they needed to achieve, and they've had experience of this in the, in the past, is that they, uh, this allow, would allow non-interference from DSRC with the Wi-Fi space that they've created, uh, which their expectation is that a lot of Wi-Fi users are going to, to use very quickly. And the reason being is a lot of the Wi-Fi radios are under software control and the way the channelization works and so forth in, uh, in Wi-Fi, it allowed them to uh, very quickly utilize this, this spectrum, which to start with, they've limited to indoor use. They've uh, established a timeline of uh, 12 months uh, to do that. We'll talk about this a little bit later about what does this mean for infrastructure and operators who've got existing DSRC, you've got 12 months to do some things. The second things that the FCC did is that uh, they mandated a change from DSRC to cellular V2X technology. Uh, again, this was unambiguous. What they did not define exactly was the time scale. They proposed a 24-month period from the uh, second notice, in other words, some, from some future date, to be able to um, transition all your equipment from uh, DSRC to cellular V2X. Now, there was some, uh, they did account there's some 6,000 RSUs, DSRC RSUs that are um, in the field already, and those will need to be migrated. There was a, quite an interesting uh, 
uh, point that wasn't in the FCC ruling, but various discussions about compensation. They did touch on compensation. Should RSU operators be compensated for uh, having to change their technology? And one of the discussion points is, well, in general, the RSU operators are governments of, of various types. And if they were going to be cons compensated, they'd be compensated by the government. So, yes, there might be finesse about which packet and which uh, thing is in which part, but in principle, the only injured party could be the government who'd be compensated by the government. So they did not deal with that as in the MPRM for a number of technical reasons or in, in the ruling. Uh, they're open to discussion about it, but uh, it's, it's probably not going to go anywhere. And how do they know that there are 6,000 RSUs deployed? It's through the licensing process. Uh, and so they've got a, a really good number on the, on, on the RSUs. And, and again, they said, you know, for, for, it was just a comparatively small number that all really are, are, are used in, in government-funded pilot schemes. And, and because there's no cars on the road with DSRC, all the OBUs are in government fleets generally or, or, or government-funded um, pilot schemes and so forth because there were no there was no injury um, to private sector auto companies because none of them are putting DSRC uh, in the cars right now. And so this was the time to make the change because if you're going to unscramble an egg, it's best when it's scrambled very little, which yeah. is the current state. And so that's why they made the, the decision. They also made the point, interestingly enough, that a number of companies, including companies like ourselves and, and others, are de deploying dual mode uh, radios, and so they're deploying cellular VTX under experimental licenses, and if we can actually proceed uh, with deployments uh, when there's no spectrum allocated, just think what we might do if uh, once we get spectrum and how, ex how rapid the acceleration might be. So just to reiterate that, what, what this ruling is saying, is, you know, for the existing uh, deployments is the DSRC existing deployments need to vacate the lower 45 within a 12-month period. And the second thing is within a 24-month that is proposed that they need to change the DSRC technology to CV2X technology. Yes. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to leave some of the really subtleties about the first notice and the second notice and the legalities and the protests and the lawsuits and all of that. I recognize all of that. I'm going to put that on one side. And so when I say, uh, yes, I, you know, I don't want everybody to say, oh, well, he clearly doesn't understand the finesse about what a waiver of the license means or the transition of the license or the 30 days from federal notice. There's a lot of detail in a lot of things. So I'm tackling this from a business and operational point of view. So yes, in principle, you're right, Pete, that we've got 12 months to vacate the lower 45 megahertz, and we've got plus two years and some change to transition away from DSRC to cellular V2X. Okay, thanks, Brian. And that's the main sort of points that we've been looking at on this, uh, you know, on, on, uh, on the ruling, in other words, what they've put out. Now, uh, one- uh, uh, Sorry, to be one last comment, because I see some of the questions coming up and people offering up different numbers. Um, I'm just repeating the numbers that are in the FCC um, notice uh, um, uh, and report. And so whether their numbers are right or wrong, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really commenting about that, uh, and, and no doubt there'll be lawsuits or contention or whatever the case may be. If their numbers are materially wrong, 
from my reading of the, uh, of the notice, uh, it's not that sensitive to uh, the number of OBUs deployed or RSUs deployed, because in principle, the, 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 the logic still applies, even if the numbers were twice as much. And, and that comes literally into the next point, which is, is the actual ruling going to actually stick? In other words, is there going to be, and yes, they, as you said, there could be lawsuits, but is the ruling going to stick? Yes. Uh, so let me deal with that. It's quite interesting. Hi, uh, Maxime. He's popped in a question here um, about the, re the rest of the world, which is following this with some skepticism. Some of this is uniquely related to the United States, and some of it applies to the rest of the world as, as well. But let's, in the first instance, understand the politics of the SEC and their role. There's a lot of uh, um, explanation in their order why they have the legal and statutory authority to do what they do. And the laws of the United States charge the FCC with making this kind of determination about what's in the public good. What's the best thing for uh, the, United, the citizens of the United States. And so this is a key thing to understand uh, for those who, who follow U.S. politics. It's common knowledge we had a, an election and that there's a, um, a change of administration on January the 20th. Um, and, and notwithstand all the you know, noise, dust, and confusion that's going on about all of that. But in principle, the FCC is, is, consists of five commissioners. And these are the ultimate guys under the uh, chair of Chairman Pai at the moment. Uh, and currently, there are three Republicans and two Democrats. Uh, and what will happen on January the 21st, after January the 20th, when the new president's sworn in, is it'll be moving to three Democrats and two Republicans under the chair of a Democratic commissioner. The point of this, this story is, is a lot of the work that's been done by the FCC has been very contentious and adversarial and um, between the two uh, you know, parties. Not this one. What happened is that the vote was unanimous, that the Democrats and Republicans supported this notice. So anybody who's expecting a change of ruling on January the 21st, when the commissioner, the balance of power in the commissioners change, is probably unlikely because the Democratic commissioners went along with this and supported this as equally and strongly as the Republicans. So that's what gives me the confidence as a business person here in the state that this ruling is going to stick. There's not really the political will to take it on and change it. So on the, November the 18th, the vote was unanimous. Uh, it was uh, one of the few things that was non-controversial, uh, and uh, it was... So what do you mean by that? I mean, you were telling me a little bit earlier that, that you, you did a Google search on Chairman Pai, and uh, okay. this didn't even come up about him. Well, in fact, it, it was what's happened is Chairman Pai, as his customary, has resigned his, his, his post as chair of the FCC with a view to... Uh, with a view to making space for the new uh, administration. This is just the, the common practice 
uh, when there's a change of administration. Um, for example, one of the things that the FCC did is net neutrality, changing the rules about how internet speeds work. It was hugely controversial, where um, there were demonstrators out the road in Chairman Pai's house and threatening his family and all kinds of things, believing, as was very strongly, the Democrats were on one side of that issue and the Republicans were on another. The point is that if you read the, you know, the 10 most significant things in, in Chairman Pai's uh, chairmanship of the FCC, this issue doesn't come up. And the reason being is in Capitol Hill amongst folks who are not in ITS transportation, this isn't considered controversial. They've got enough spectrum for safety and they've got enough spectrum for Wi-Fi. The FCC, like King Solomon, divided the baby uh, and uh, it's, uh, let's go, just move on. Um, uh, so I, I, I saw uh, the, you know, a question about the, the lobbying. Yes, there was a, a lot of lobbying by a lot of people on all sides, including ourselves. In principle, nobody really got everything they want. I, I've been doing consensus-based standards for many years uh, in my role as chair of the NEMA section. And I often say, if everybody's equally unhappy, that's probably a good compromise. And the, and the same applies here, is everybody's unhappy and yelling. And that's in all likelihood, it's probably as good as it's going to, to get. And, and, and the, you know, the fact that the, the, the United States administration is, uh, you know, part of that is, is lobbying. And, you know, we, we have lobbyists and everybody has lobbyists. So we all lobby and eventually decisions get made. But the public comment process, very, very significant, very, very well processed and documented that everybody had a say uh, and then the FCC took all that input and decided what they believed to be in the interests of the American public uh, and provided the reasoning in quite a lot of detail uh, and so uh, you know my view is that it was uh, uh, it was quite well reasoned the fact that I didn't agree with it um, is sort of beside the point. That's because I'm, I'm unhappy. I, you know, I advocated for the 75 megahertz to be preserved for, uh, you know, automotive safety. Uh, but the FCC didn't take my arguments. But they did uh, make a number of valid points, which I hadn't really considered, um, uh, and it took me a little while to process them. One of them was that when DSRC was designed 20 years ago approximately, uh, it was the only safety technology being considered. And there were a number of use cases or applications, uh, including uh, rear-end collisions was a big topic that we were going to prevent vehicles from running into the backs of other vehicles. But what happens, and this tends to happen with technology, is that uh, when the, you know, DSRC was designed, that was when Wi-Fi first spectrum was allocated to Wi-Fi and now 40% of the internet's traffic runs on Wi-Fi and we still don't have DSRC deployed. So I'm not going to beat a, a dead horse about why that happened or, or so forth. But the FCC made the point is that they have allocated safety spectrum uh, to new applications. And the key one was that rear end collisions and implementing safety applications for rear end collisions using radar. Uh, where they allocated spectrum in the 75 megahertz band. And that's been hugely successful technology. 
a lot of vehicles have forward collision yeah, warning. almost all the new vehicles. I, you almost can't buy a new vehicle without I a radar. I don't think you can, because now that NHTSA is talking about making that mandatory, or in the process of making that mandatory, and that's been a hugely successful technology, a radio-based technology that has made um, rear-end collision uh, or rear-end crashes much more avoidable. So that was um, an example of technology overtaking a use case that DSRC was, or, or short-range radio was, was going to, to use. The second thing, um, you know, is that uh, even as we speak, new technologies are, um, are, are, you know, just coming out week by week, um, including things like um, vision systems using AI or artificial intelligence to recognize and read street signs and to recognize and read traffic lights. So red light running, for example, which was a big uh, application for... Um, you know, the connected vehicles. Well, as it happens, my car has got uh, a couple of cameras in the front and it won't run a red light because it reads the traffic lights like a human. And so, again, this is uh, American innovation, step by step, deploying technologies um, to provide safety uh, as things develop. So, um, uh, the FCC made the point is that they pro they're providing a uh, spectrum as applicable to, um, applications. Uh, to applications. But the key thing is you have to have applications. And that was their big th thing is, you know, the, one of the things they seek a comment about whether they should find additional uh, spectrum for additional applications. But it's got to be done on the basis of applications, not on the basis of, oh, well, you know, you're making the world more dangerous for my children. You've got to actually be much more precise about it, to carry weight at the, at the FCC. There's an interesting thing that they, that they did deal with, and that's one of the primary objections from a number of, um, of practitioners who make uh, cellular V2X radios, is out-of-band limits. And what the fear is, is that these Wi-Fi radios will uh, cause interference in the cellular V2X direct band, and that is, and that is quite, uh, quite a legitimate concern. And so what the FCC have done is said, give us your comment about how to achieve that. And a number of the radio companies and the automotive companies have given very specific recommendations about what happens at the edge of the band from Wi-Fi to cellular V2X. And if the um, uh, FCC validates those requests and, and so forth, and make a ruling to solve the out-of-band limit potential problem. That was really the biggest um, technical thing that was raised by automotive companies about um, you know, to potential technical problems between Wi-Fi and, and cellular V2X. No, and so my expectation is that will be resolved. Now, one of the other things that I read in the, in the ruling was that the Wi-Fi would be limited in the first year to only be indoor applications. Am I correct in saying that? Yes. The, 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 the FCC went to quite some lengths to make sure that the, anybody who's using DSRC applications at the moment wasn't going to be harmed by this ruling. And so that's where they said, okay, to start with, you're only permitted to operate this new Wi-Fi bands indoor, so then there's not going to be any practical interference in the streets outside. 
And for the next year, while it gave anybody who's using DSRC in practice to transition out of the band. So they were very, very careful and very, very thoughtful about not causing injury to anybody. Uh, and uh, while you know, I, along with many other people, didn't like some of this stuff, they, you had to respect the fact that they were quite practical and thoughtful about how they were going to achieve this without hurting anybody. Great. Uh, just to answer one of Maxine's questions, uh, is AI going to offer its R issues as dual mode, or will it simply move to PC5? Uh, I'm, we're actually going to go into that in a little bit more detail when we talk about the deployment options, because both of them work out in different factors for, for deploying this technology. But to answer Maxine's question, you know, simply, yes, we are going to carry on. And the, and the reason being is that it's just not a practical thing from a business point of view. We're going to go into more detail in, in, in a couple of the, uh, how, you know, what should we do kind of answers. But what um, the, 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 the practicality is that uh, DSRC is still going to be with us for a while. And there's a lot to be learned by continuing your current procurements. And so we're still going to offer uh, dual mode RSUs. Uh, and the reason being is that we expect that radios to change in the future. So what we're going to do is when 5G radios become available and 6G and so forth, there's always going to be a need for, for pluggable uh, radios and multiple radios to ensure that you've got uh, both backwards compatible radios and forward compatible radios. Uh, so yes, we've got, we've got we're, not, we're not going to, given that we've decided that uh, we have to be able to accommodate multiple radios, that's still what we're going to do. And uh, it's just going to be uh, a collection of past radios and future radios. Can you, can you go into a little bit more detail about mm. radios? Because yeah, everybody's talked about DSRC, CV2X. Um, I mean, it's just like 3G and 4G. What are the differences between these, the radio chips? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a little bit of show and tell. Uh, in, in that, you know, it sounds like a hugely complicated thing. And at some levels it is, but if you, it's called abstraction in the, in the technology space. If you make the layers uh, separate from each other, uh, th then the world becomes a lot simpler. So what we did is we said, and other people are do doing the same thing, is that uh, there, there's the, the chip makers who make the radios, there's the module makers who make the modules, and then there's companies like ours who make the RSU, the roadside unit. And so what we did is we said, okay, well, I mean, this is my little show, show and tell. And what we can do, do is, if you just flick the, the camera over there, is that, for example, this here is a cellular V2X radio module. Uh, this is something that we make. The silver thing is made by somebody else, and inside is the radio module, who's in turn made by, by somebody else. And so, but the point being is that you can make this very effectively, it's a tiny little thing, that plugs into a slot. And that then makes, uh, you know, transmits and receives cellular V2X radio. So what we did is over here, this is a DSRC radio. So this is a module made by some other people with some other people's stuff inside it. The details are unimportant, but what we do is we have exactly the same kind of connector. So we plug this radio in, it becomes a DSRC radio. But we know that, and the FCC made a big point about, uh, well, what about the network radio? Well, as it happens, this over here is a 4G LTE radio 
that's got a module on it that's made by somebody with somebody else's chips inside it that make uh, a, a 4G LTE cell phone radio. And you can see on the back of this one, and you probably can't see, I'll see if I can do this without getting completely out of focus, which, which it is, but there's a, there's, that's all right. It's, a, it's got a SIM card in the back, so it, uh, th this is a, um, what, what, what a 4G LTE radio looks like. And what we're doing is we're going to make a 5G radio that's exactly the same form factor. And so now that you've got the business of being able to abstract the kind of radio, it doesn't, that's, that's not so critical uh, to make a decision about which is going to be the winner and the loser. We see it as a key part of the story about how you proceed with confidence is how do you make this into a product? And we, uh, I just, we just brought an example over here. So what this is, is an OBU that goes into a fire truck. Well, we've been doing this for a long time. We've got thousands of these things out, out there. And this version has got a lot of radio antennas at the back where you can plug in all these different radios. Because if you open it up, uh, maybe what we should do, Pete, is you can just press the focus on that, on that camera there. I'll hold it like this, something. And what this is, it shows the inside. And what it does is he, he, these are slots for a cellular V2X radio, a DSRC radio, a 4G or 5G radio. This one's not populated. This, in fact, is a 900 megahertz unlicensed radio, which is a fourth kind of radio that you can use for this kind of thing. But the software is all done by the microprocessor over here, which is where, this, where the, um, all the programming is done. And it just uses whichever kind of radio uh, it's configured to use. So what you can do is you can, um, you know, with over there software updates, which is an important part of all of this, you can change which channels it uses and so forth. Uh, and get a very effective deployment so that when you deploy this kind of technology with, with multiple radios uh, that are pluggable, it means that in the future when 5G comes about or 6G beyond it, or 5G NR, which is the new line of sight radio the, uh, standard which is being designed, your stuff is future-proof and you're not wasting your money. So Brian, why is it important to have multiple radios in a fire truck application? The, the, the answer is this. It's, it's twofold. I'm going to answer with uh, the business case and then the technical case. The business case of why you should have multiple radios is that it gives you redundancy. Uh, that uh, the, the, the business of trying to make one radio perfect is much harder than using multiple radios. And so, you know, as, as folks who follow our... Um, connected vehicle technology products and so forth. We use a line of sight radio, and that could be 900 megahertz, could be Wi-Fi uh, wi radio, it could be cellular V2X, it could be DSRC. Now it's going to be obviously cellular V2X. And then we use the cellular V2N radio for longer range, because that can go over the hill and around the corner. And we're not dependent on making one radio perfect. We just, we, if you send the same messages over multiple radios, Statistically, you've just got a much better pro chance of the, radio get, of the radio message getting to the far end. And that's what we're doing. It's proved very, very effective in practice. Now, one of the other big points in... in sorry, sorry, Peter. I think... Yeah. Did I, uh, the, 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 I didn't answer your question completely. That's the technical reason. The business reason is so that you're not, you, you're not, you're not wasting your money. Uh, you, you're always assured that you're going to have uh, a future-proof implementation mm -hmm of whatever's coming. And basically these units just process whichever message comes in first. Correct. 
Correct. The messages are all designed. The very clever guys who developed the, the, the stack is that the messages can be transmitted over any radio uh, technology. So we send the same message over multiple radios, and then we process at the receiving end which message arrives first, and then discard the, 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 the rest of the messages that arrive over different channels that have got the same message number. So uh, there was another uh, item uh, that we had in, in, in this, uh, you know, is the ruling going to stick, which was use it or lose it. Can you explain what they meant by that statement? Yeah, that's my sort of brief summary. They didn't use those words exactly. But what happened is that uh, the big concern, uh, there was a lot of talk in the ruling about the, the spectrum lying fallow. And that meant that it was reserved for use, but never used. And so uh, there's some concern that even cellular V2X, if you just view that as DSRC by a different name, it's just a different radio, maybe it works slightly better, it's got some advantages, but the big advantage is it's got the network component it's, uh, and, and so forth. But there was a clear uh, implication, not a, not, not a stated threat, that if we in the traffic and transportation business don't use the spectrum, they're going to take it away and give it to somebody else. The, in other words, that, that we don't have another 20 years of protection like we had before uh, to talk about using it. We've got to use it. And that's where we and others are, are really focused on, let's get this done. Let's get this deployed out there and let's get a move on. And, and there's been a number of car companies that have committed to CV2X. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, uh, both uh, domestically as well as internationally. Uh, obviously, the, uh, quite interesting that the, uh, the Chinese automakers are leading the way. They have full-blown commitment to deploy cellular V2X peer-to-peer, -peer, the, the line-of-sight radios. Uh, in 2021 and so and develop applications and so forth and there's a number of uh, car companies here working on it and and for those of you who follow us uh, we announced a collaboration with Audi uh, to be able to um, uh, produce uh, applications related to school buses and school zones uh, these are you know preventing cars from overtaking school buses when the kids are getting on and off uh, and slow the cars down when they're going past a school in in, in, in critical times. And so, you know, these collaborations are taking place as, as we speak. Great. Uh, thanks, Brian. And, and one of the things we do have is, uh, you know, the 5G AA uh, had a um, session recently on deployments in the USA. There's, I've got a short video clip here that I'm going to show you on some of the current deployments within the US. So hold on. The 5G Automotive Association showcase of CV to X deployment activities on U.S. roads. So, gentlemen, do you see already some positive effects on traffic from this deployment? The interesting thing in this area is that the business of being able to bring real applications to the public really changes the game as far as showing the benefit of connected vehicles. Travel safety is entirely free for the public to download and it makes it capable that you can get connected vehicle technology in a 1950s pickup truck. With the applied information CV2X solution, we saw a product that met all of our needs in one single package. School zone warnings, railroad crossing warnings, bicyclists, and we knew deploying those units would benefit our residents. When you think about the immediate impact, the day we turned them on, 
being able to get a green light safely and get there quickly is truly a life or death matter. And the communities recognize it's all about public health and safety. Can you tell us a little bit about this use case for cyclist priority requests? Oh, yes. If you think about a peloton of cyclists, they logically equivalent to a zero emission bus. So you'd make green lights for the bus, transit signal priority. So we can actually deploy this with no additional cost because the infrastructure is already established. Today we are announcing that Audi, Applied Information, and Temple Incorporated are launching an initial deployment of CV2X in the future focus city of Alpharetta, Georgia, that are aimed at improving safety in school zones and around school buses when children are present. The city sees the benefit of having a deployment citywide for being able to manage our network as a whole unit. So having a widespread deployment is very beneficial. We're all in this together, and we're all out here to, for the benefit of all of us. And so uh, I hope that that creates the, the energy that, that this movement needs to come together and say, let's make it real this time. CV2X is ready and being deployed today and can make roads safer, smarter, and more efficient. And you can see that's a, a great video just showcasing some of the applications um, that are being deployed here in the US and how it's not, you know, it's multiple different companies in multiple different states deploying this. And obviously we've got, um, you know, people like you saw there, Audi, who are committed to CV2X in deploying this technology. and and actually bringing out life-saving technology and applications for vulnerable road users in, in school zone applications. It's, uh, it's actually been uh, very rewarding and quite fascinating about just what collaboration looks like. When we actually get going, we've all been in our silos of, of infrastructure guys and automotive guys arguing about the radios for so many years. And so it's just really heartwarming to work with the Audi engineers as where it's not some abstract concept, but given that they detect a school bus, uh, what should they do? What should the alert look like? Should they apply the brakes? And, and so forth. And, and likewise, should in a school zone, in the, and the school zone goes on to say that there's a lower speed limit, should it go beep, beep, bop, bop? Should it vibrate the steering wheel? Uh, should it uh, slow the car down? Um, and what this shows is that really the best part of connected vehicle lies ahead of us, which is as we get into the business of applications. That's going to make the big difference is when we produce, show and validate, not use cases. Use cases isn't scientific sort of terminology. Mm. It's applications where everybody can um, see these applications, use these applications, and car companies can sell more cars by the fact that they've got better features than somebody else's cars. And, and there's a question that, that came in here about how, would V2, how well would V2X work when there's a limited deployment in the cars? Uh, and the, the answer is, that's an interesting pro question. And if you think about V2X like uh, it was 10 or 15 years ago where it was the sole way of communicating. Um, you know, the sole way of delivering safety applications. That was always a question about what's the, what's the value. 
but every vehicle that drives off the lot uh, interacts with the infrastructure on the first day. When that traffic light outside the dealership goes bop, bop, red light, or get ready for green, or gives you some countdown timers, and gives you some information, gives that same information to the pedestrians, and, 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 and that there's a pedestrian and a pedestrian crossing ahead, then that you're starting to get real value, A, which will accelerate the adoption. Uh, we've got some discussions with a great group of folks in the aftermarket business. I mean, America is a fantastic place. There are all kinds of innovators doing all kinds of things. What does an aftermarket V2X device look like? And who would be the potential market for that um, to, for example, give freight vehicles priority at green to give them green lights in off-peak periods? Well, all sorts of things get unlocked as soon as you get beyond arguing about the radio to get to discussing the applications and most importantly collaborating about the application. Because not one of, we don't have the answer on our own. We have the answer together. Great. Brian, I'd, I'd like to move on to you know, the deployments. Yeah. So you know, the first thing that we've got is if I'm an agency with current DSRC deployments, what should I do? Right, so what you should do is uh, there's going to be a, um, some technical stuff that you just got to take on board. And one is to do with the licensing. Now, the, the intention is that your DSRC licensees will be modified automatically so that you would have, irrespective of what your license requested, your usage to be in terms of channels, it's going to be modified so that it, uh, it's valid for operation in the upper 30 megahertz. So you, you've got to get your consultants or your uh, license uh, folks who did your license just to verify that that is done correctly. So then you, then you license to operate DSRC in the upper 30 megahertz. And uh, now what the thing you've got to do is speak to your providers, whoever um, runs the DSRC system and ensure that those uh, um, that the messages are transmitted and received in the upper 30 megahertz, not in the, the lower um, channel, which 172, which was the basic safety message. So all in practical terms, all DSRC radios are going to have to get a configuration change or a software change to use the, um, uh, the, the channels which are now allocated to uh, DSRC for the next 24 months approximately, 24 to 36 months. Um, and so uh, there should be no change to your hardware. It's the same antennas. It's just a slightly different frequency. Um, you need to plan to have this completed in 12 months. So you've got a bit of time, but you don't have forever. And you've got to have a plan to uh, change both your RSUs, of which you've got individual site licenses for, and OBUs, now the onboard units, you don't have individual licenses for, but the FCC's expectation is the majority of, of OBUs are aftermarket OBUs because only some 3,000 cars were sold ever with DSRC. Um, uh, and so the OBUs are generally in the aftermarket business, in the government fleet vehicles or under government pilot schemes. And you've got to move those to uh, the new frequencies uh, in the next 12 months. So uh, that, that, those are action items if you're an agency uh, with current DSRC deployments. Uh, and then uh, what you've got to do is put in place your migration plan for cellular V2X. Uh, and um, 
that could be um, you know, simple or complicated depending on what your DSRC uh, implementation looks like. But, uh, but a lot of the um, infrastructure that you provided, uh, in including the power to the radios as well as the map files and all the, uh, the work that you did, is going to largely be transferred to Cellular V2X. It's just a different radio. Yeah, it can all be reused. Great. Um, I'm going to move over to, if I'm an agency in the procurement process, what should I do? In other words, we, we're in the procurement process right now, and we've specified it how it is. What are my next steps? Right. And so this is our, our opinion, uh, given the, what we know about the FCC and what we know about the future. And, and this is not us selling our solution. What we do is we develop our solution because we think that this is where the market is going to be, the old Wayne Gretzky uh, analogy of skating where the pack is going to be. Our view is that if you're buying DSRC radios at the moment, don't do that. It's not going to prove to be a good investment because the FCC has just unambiguously stated that they're moving away from DSRC. Now, you might be a, a gambling man who says, uh, what a uh, gambling person to be correct, um, who says that, well, maybe the FCC ruling is going to be overturned. It is possible, but uh, they were pretty definitive and well-reasoned about why that's not going to happen. And so we don't think deploying DSRC radius on their own uh, is a sound course of action uh, and, and well-spent money. Uh, if you're buying uh, dual-mode switchable uh, radios, carry on. Um, you're going to be able to commission them with DSRC or with CV2X. If you've got a big installed base of OBUs that you want to test them out with, with DSRC, carry on and doing that and be prepared to switch from DSRT cellular V2X in the, in the next couple of years. And if you're buying dual-active dual plug-all radios, you're set. Continue. So uh, th th those radios are designed for this environment. Um, sometimes you're good, sometimes you're lucky. As it happens, we read the tea leaves correctly that uh, envisaged a, a, an environment where the FCC was going to, to change to, to a new radio and further new radios in the, in the future. And uh, so if you're buy, you know, buying dual-mode, dual-active, pluggable radios, uh, you'll continue because your provider will provide you with modules that you can plug in as these radios change in the future. And the details of the licenses to be attended to. So, yes. Now there are a lot. There are a lot of. In fact, there's a good question uh, about you know site surveys and so forth. Um, our experience is that um, you know there are a couple of aspects related to licenses, which, to be honest, are in a state of flux right now. There's quite a lot in the NPRM about, uh, well, not NPRM in the notice um, and rule that how the licenses, some of the licenses are going to be automatically uh, switched. switched. There's going to be an automatic process of if you have a DSRC license, that's going to grant you a waiver to do a cellular V2X license. Um, but, uh, you know, we've got some great attorneys in, uh, in DC who deal with this and a, a couple of uh, references. So, uh, if, you, if you're unsure about the legalities and the licenses, there's some great resources that are comparatively inexpensive uh, to help you navigate your way through the details of, of the FCC license. And, and, you, can, and you can reach out to <laughs> sales at appinfoinc.com. 
www.ethicsmith.com and we'll get back to you and, and, and help you after that process. Yeah. All right, we've only got about seven minutes left. So if I was an agency not doing any deployments yet, what should I do? Right, the first thing you should do is not put your head in the sand and wait because waiting means that we will fail to use it or lose it thing. So what we think you should do is focus on day one applications. Let's focus on the things that we can deliver real value today. And that's obviously we, we, we say, well, the, the para, paramedics are getting paramedics to citizens in need um, and so forth um, is, is a great day one application that all your constituents can then see some real value in connected vehicles and allows you to experiment and, and so forth and get used to what's involved in maintaining a connected vehicle system. And then the second point is play your part in utilizing the spectrum to preserve it. If we don't actually get on and do this, then um, we, we, we're just going to get nowhere. And again, the automakers, um, you know, there's all this question, question about, well, once you've got 10% of the automobiles done, there's still only a 1% probability that this car is going to interact with the other cars. So yes, that, that, that's an issue, but they all deal with the infrastructure on the first day. And so the business of the infrastructure owner operators leading this deployment is really a powerful argument as opposed to following the car companies. If, if, if all your things support value cellular V2X and, and, and so forth, there's a compelling reason for the car companies to use that information um, because otherwise their car is going to be perceived as less safe than somebody else's car. Plus they're also CV2X network is also another um, form of communication. So people with smartphones that are running applications on their smartphones, sending out these connected vehicle messages can also get, you know, these 1960s pickup trucks in the connected vehicle world that, that basically progresses this technology a lot faster as well. Correct. And so uh, there are a couple of questions there, so a couple of interesting. What's the difference between switchable and, uh, and dual mode, dual active? Um, well, they're both dual mode. They both support DSRC as well as cellular V2X direct uh, and cellular V2N and, and so forth. Uh, but uh, on the market, there are really two different ways of the, that folks have done it. Some is that it's either or. You can either have it as cellular V2X or DSRC. You have a little dip switch or a little switch inside the unit some under software control, that you can do either this or that because they, they share the same antenna. The dual active means that it does cellular VTX and DSRC at the same time through different antenna on slightly different frequencies. But what that allows you to do is to have a more uh, manageable transition as you're doing your testing and your deployment. And let's say you, uh, you've got half your fire tracks done with DSRC and half done with cellular VTX. Then you need dual active uh, at your intersections to be able to support both as you transition from one to that. It's just another, it's just a much more practical way of doing it. So that, I hope that answers that question. And then the next question is, which tests do you carry out to ensure the safety of drivers and, and passerbys against cyber hacking at connected cars? Yeah, so uh, that's, a, that's a great question and it's probably worth, worthy of an hour's discussion all on its own. But a lot of work has been put into uh, cybersecurity of connected vehicles, uh, both at the, the network level 
as well as at the point-to-point -point, uh, level. And so uh, all the work that was done in security for DSRC is immediately carried over to cellular vertex. There's no change. And so um, security credential management is a key part of that. And so there's been a lot of theoretical and practical work to make sure that connected vehicles are safe and that hackers and spoofing attacks and so forth uh, cannot occur. And then again, because all these devices have over their software update capability, uh, if a security uh, vulnerability is identified, and, and, and on the internet we've, we've had n many versions of certificates um, with, uh, uh, with, with, with better and better security, obsoleting old certificates. So and you get, you get software updates on your smartphone every couple of weeks with new security updates. Absolutely you do. And that's uh, going to be in, uh, in, this, in this process as well. So, uh, so really, so security is built into it. And uh, the, the biggest problem we've got is not that uh, things are not secure. The biggest problem we've got is that we need to have applications deployed to demonstrate the value uh, and uh, the security is, is really good. And if a hole is discovered, we'll make it better. So uh, one thing we didn't go over on, on uh, you know, if, we, if we're an agency that hasn't deployed anything yet, what should they look at? Um, and, and what kind of radio should they deploy right now? So yep. I think that was the last point over there. Right. So in other words, the, um, our view is, and, and we compete in this market with other folks, so this is not a, a sales pitch, uh, but if you've got existing DSRC deployments, then carry on and deploy your dual mode, dual active with DSRC and Cellular Vita X. If you haven't got anything deployed, well then dual, uh, deploy radios with Cellular Vita X Direct and Cellular Vita X Network, because this is going to be a key part of uh, making sure that, so for example, the, the FCC brought up the issue of weather, you know, weather information. Weather information is not sub-second time critical. Uh, it's, uh, it's much more, uh, lends itself much more to being broadcast over the, um, the network radios. And so if, if you deploy, you know, pluggable radios focused on Cellular V2X and Cellular V2X, uh, to the Cellular V2X network, then you're set, and because they're pluggable, you're set when 5G, NR, or 6G, and so forth come about uh, in the future. You'll have built yourself a future-proof. Because uh, most people in, the, in this industry deploy technology for a good 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. They put something in a cabinet. But radios are changing every couple of years, just like your smartphones change every couple of years. That, that is correct. And that, that's actually a, a, a great way to probably end this. We've got a couple of seconds left. But that's to say that, uh, which is hard for our public sector friends, uh, perhaps also for some of our consulting friends, how do you deploy all of this in an environment of rapid change? Well, as it happens, we've, as we've shown here, there are a number of things you can do to actually deploy stuff that's future-proof, has over there software updates for security and applications, and that means you can participate in this changeable future uh, with a reasonable freedom of risk. So you can actually, you don't have to uh, be fearful of the future, you can embrace it. Well, thank you so much, Brian, and thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. We really appreciate your time, and this was a fantastic topic to discuss. So thank you, everybody, and until the next show, we'll see you then.